Will you pray with me? Holy Lord, we live in a day where there is an overload of information, where there is many voices claiming truth. Yet we know that many of these voices twist the truth to be more appealing to sway us. We live in a day of skepticism and supposed higher thought. May we humble ourselves and remember that your thoughts are higher than ours. Your ways are greater than ours. We are so grateful that you have revealed the truth to us, that the mystery of the gospel was revealed by the teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, that there is more to this life than power and selfish gain that much of the world teaches. There is the kingdom of God that proclaims its law is founded on sacrificial love. It proclaims that we can be brought into this kingdom by the sacrifice of Jesus and gain a new eternal life in Christ because of his resurrection. This kingdom is ruled by Jesus the Christ. May we submit to the authority of Christ. May we seek to be convicted by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. May we gather as a church to proclaim our submission to you as Lord and King and show our submission to each other so that the world can see that our love for each other is because of Christ. To you, Lord, be all the glory. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you, even though we're masked and distanced. It's so good to be in the presence of the saints and to be able to sing praises to our Lord. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Our passage for the day is Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Mine and Kayla's oldest daughter will soon be old enough to learn how to drive, and that's given me the chance to reminisce on what it was like when I was learning how to drive. And the thing that stands out the most to me is remembering memorizing the road signs. They have the, the picture of the road signs, uh, the, the images, the symbols, the short words, giving you information, and on the right side, they'd tell you the text, there would be the text telling you what this sign means. And the signs are important to keep you safe while you travel, so you know when to yield or when it's okay to pass. And I remember looking at the, some signs as a challenge, the curve ahead, 35 miles an hour, I bet I could do 45. Or speed limit signs, I looked at them more as guidelines of how to drive. But I learned that it was far more discerning and affordable to read those signs a little more literally. And the Bible's no different. The Bible has certain words and actions that are filled to the brim with meaning. They're signs that are used as shorthand to make powerful statements with powerful truths. And we would do well as students of Scripture to learn how to read those signs in a discerning way. It's essential that we don't misinterpret the signs that we are given. Think back to the signs that we've seen across the Gospel of Mark. Jesus calming the sea. Jesus casting out demons. Jesus healing the sick and proclaiming their sins forgiven. We've seen over 60 plus weeks how in the first 16 chapters and eight verses, Mark has carefully crafted the works of Jesus in an action-packed way, 
full of urgency, pointing to a first century Palestinian man and saying, get a load of this guy doing all these Yahweh things. Who do you think he is? And it's not a rhetorical question. The title for the sermon today is The Signs of the Authority of Jesus. So go now to Mark 16, verse 9. And when we turn to the passage, the first sign that hits us is the way the publishers have set this section off with brackets. Or depending on the translation you're using, a big space or a bold line. Or the entire section is in italics. And your Bible probably has a note somewhere that on the page that says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. So we're going to talk for a minute about how this passage and this note got here. Church tradition teaches us that John Mark traveled with Peter and used what he learned from Peter to compose the gospel that we have in front of us today. But due to the passage of time, Mark's original writings, or what's known as his autograph, has long since de decomposed. Instead of the original, what we have are a multitude of copies. You might have heard that we have over 6,000 copies, 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament or of the Bible from the first 1,200 years of church history. Some have very small portions of Scripture on them, and others are more, ex more extensive. Here's a couple images to give you an idea of what we're working with. Now, the consistency across these manuscripts is nothing short of miraculous. As the writings of these apostles and those who recorded the witnesses of the resurrected Christ, they, they took the writings, they made copies, and they spread them throughout the church. But great care was given to accuracy. And this brings us to the first point of the sermon, and that's that we can have confidence that the Bible that we have today is the Bible that God wants us to have. In those first 1,200 years of church history, people called scribes were trained to copy the biblical writings faithfully, and they paid close attention to the texts, and we've benefited from their labor. There's an entire field of study related to this today called textual criticism, and there are scholars in this field who are believers and some scholars who are not believers. But regardless of their faith, the transparency in this field is unmatched. For an example, we just need to go back to Mark 15, verse 39. Here we see a textual variant that is, that is noted in our Bible. Uh, that slide says that when the centurion saw that in this way he cried out and breathed his last, that part that's in parentheses, that's in some manuscripts, and some manuscripts do not have cried out and breathed his last, the centurion said, truly, this man was the son of God. This manuscript variant makes no change to the meaning of the text. There are other variants, other examples noted in our Bibles, but none of them say Jesus wasn't God or that he was married to Mary Magdalene. None of them change the orthodox confession of our faith. Getting back to verses, verses 9 through 20, the note that we have here, scholars have reached a broad consensus that verses 9 through 20 were not composed by Mark. Instead, they were added later. If this is new to you, you might be feeling uncomfortable, but I want to encourage you to keep learning. Discomfort is often a sign that a previously held belief is being challenged. Without it being said quite this way, many of us have been taught 
that the Bible was deposited into humans' minds in some X-Files kind of way. And they were, they were in a trance when they were writing it. Or maybe like the Bible came floating down from heaven, full, fully assembled with maps in the back and everything. But this understanding won't hold water when you review the way scriptures have actually been assembled. Now, don't hear me wrong. The Holy Spirit was intimately involved in composing our Bibles. But inspiration isn't as neat and tidy as the modern Western mind would think. The Bible is inspired by God and written by men. The inspiration started well before the moment of writing. We see in the Old Testament where God took men who were skilled in writing prose and faithful to him, and he revealed his truths to them, and they wrote them down, and the people of God affirmed, yes, this is a faithful representation of Yahweh. Then in the Gospels, we see four witnesses, each taking their own approach to recording biographies of the life of Jesus each testifying in their own way, using their knowledge of the Hebrew scripture to draw out and highlight themes of Jesus's life that illustrate that he is the promised one who was sent to be a faithful witness, an intercessor through death, and he was raised and made king of everything. This is what Mark does. And as we saw last week, verse eight leaves a cliffhanger kind of feeling. We don't know the exact purpose for the addition to this gospel, but we know roughly when it was added based on the testimony of some early church fathers. So we have a simple timeline here for you, starting with zero, roughly the year of Jesus's birth, through 30, roughly the year of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And then roughly the year 60 is when we believe that Mark was originally composed. Well, by the year 145, we have testimony, we have the witness of early church fathers who are aware of this longer ending. So this longer ending to Mark was written sometime between 60 and about 145 AD. While the author made no attempts to imitate Mark in his writing style, it's remarkably consistent with his themes. And we'll see along the way. I'm going to give you four reasons now why there's value in studying this section, despite the fact that it wasn't penned by the author of the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Number one, the dating is important because it means that the material was included early enough in the transmission process to gain recognition and acceptance by the early church as canon. The apostles and those that they were teaching, if, if there was something in this passage that went against the apostles' teaching, it would, not have, it would not have survived. Number two, the longer ending has internal consistency with the rest of Mark. The theme of belief and unbelief throughout the gospel is present here, along with the theme of the ultimate affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah with his being seated at the right hand of God. Number three, the longer ending is consistent with the rest of Scripture. It's primarily composed of material from other canonical sources. And I'll point that out along the way. None of this comes from Gnostic or apocryphal writings or competing Gospels that were not included in our Bibles. And then finally, number four, like other places in Scripture, it gives us insight into the way God is at work at a specific time and in a specific place. The Bible we hold is reliable and powerful. If you have more questions about the way that this text was composed 
or other questions about the way that we got this collection of writings here, the Bible, feel free to reach out to me or one of the other elders here this morning, or you can email us at elders at missionsalem.com. Now, having said all of that, let's take a look at the content of the longer ending of Mark and come to an understanding of what it meant to the original audience and what it means for our lives today. Follow along with me now. I'll read verses 9 through 16. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So here we come to our second point, the sign of Jesus' authority over death. We see here right away the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion. His followers scattered since that Passover night of their teacher's arrest. His death scattering any remaining hopes. Jesus' teaching long forgotten. Remember Mark 8, 31 and 32, where Jesus promises... He says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark leaves no doubt that Jesus was not ambiguous in his promise. But the prophecy seemed completely unbelievable. For one reason or another, the disciples did not believe this would happen. Rather than any number of obedient and expectant responses, we find them in a hopeless state, except for Mary Magdalene, who hears and obeys the direction of the angel at the tomb after seeing the risen Christ. This Mary was a beneficiary of Christ's authority, as is testified to here and in Luke 8, 2. At some point, Jesus showed the sign of his authority in the spiritual realm by casting seven demons out from her. From chapter 1 of Mark all the way through chapter 9, we see Jesus acting as the authority in the spiritual realm, and that authority is on display in the signs of casting demons out of people. But a new sign of Jesus' authority is now in full sight of Mary Magdalene. This same Mary was there back in Mark 1540 when he was brutally killed. The same Mary was there in Mark 1547 when he was laid in the tomb. So for her to see him upright meant something very incredible. It meant she was in the presence of incredible authority, authority over death. Ever since humanity's exit from the garden, death has reigned. It's been the undefeated champion. When the first humans rejected the good authority of the creator and reached for their own, death was brought into the world. And just one generation after Adam and Eve, death became not only a curse, but a weapon. It became something to wield over someone else, to bring them down. 
the shared destiny of humankind became a lever to pull to get me more of what I want, regardless of the cost to you. We've all been caught up in the power of death. We've participated in it in some way, and its stench is thick in the air. Maybe we think that we like to reason with each other or negotiate rather than use violence, but at the greatest levels of power, just the threat of death is enough to move nations. I've heard Theodore Roosevelt's foreign policy could be summed up in speak softly and carry a big stick. Certainly the wisdom of this world. So with that long history of death in our minds, we go back to the first, first day of the week and imagine seeing the resurrected one, a sign that death is not in charge. And Jesus even refers to his resurrection as a sign. Turn with me to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 38. Here we see the scribes and the Pharisees demanding a sign. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus was not reluctant to perform miracles, the signs of his authority, but here we see the scribes and the Pharisees seeking a sign. They were a group that had seen and heard of Jesus and what he was doing, but Jesus, knowing that no amount of signs would bring about a repentant heart, warns them of the judgment to come for their unbelief. The sign that they will be given is the vindication of the Messiah, a resurrection proving his power over death, and thus all of creation. The resurrection was the sign of his victory and authority over death, but the disciples would not believe it. The author of this longer ending to Mark gathered the story of Mary's witness from John's gospel. The next section is a condensed version of what Luke expounds upon in chapter 24 of his gospel. Two disciples, possibly two who heard Mary's witness and did not believe it, are visited by Jesus in his resurrected form, but initially are not able to recognize him. But once Jesus opens their eyes to his identity and the truth of his scriptures, they, like Mary, go and tell the other believers, and their witness, like Mary's, is disbelieved. I think we're seeing a pattern emerge from the witness of one to the witness of two. And we know what happens next because we already read it. Jesus arrives, his presence, the confirmation of the witness of Mary, and the two unnamed followers. His presence was the confirming sign of his resurrection and authority. After reprimanding the disciples for not believing the eyewitness to his resurrection, we find some familiar words in verses 15 and 16. So let's read those again. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, 
but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Here we find the Great Commission, familiar, familiar to us from Matthew chapter 28. We've already seen the sign of authority in Jesus' resurrection, and now we're given another sign in his missional proclamation. And like any other sign, Jesus' words are loaded with more meaning than can fit on the page. This sign is our third point, the sign of the gathering of the nations. There's a theme throughout Scripture about the nations. And it begins in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel event. The nations are scattered and their languages are confused as a judgment. Turn to Genesis 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Because even after the scattering, after confusing the languages, God immediately puts in place a plan of salvation. This is his redemptive plan, and it begins with a promise to Abram. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God's redemptive plan had its focus on one family, the family of Abram, who would later be known as Abraham. And the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, tell the story of that family that became a nation, how God worked with them and revealed his glory to them. It tells how he set them apart from all other nations of the world to be devoted to him. But up until the time of the Great Commission in Mark 16, God's redemptive work was embedded in national Israel. But planted in the initial calling of Abram was the seed of God's promise to bless all the families of the world. And as we read the Old Testament, if we tune our ears correctly, when we read it, we will pick up on this theme throughout scriptures. The, the blessing of all families of the world is not going to happen at some ambiguous time in the future, but the Bible is thick with the idea that the Messiah would usher in a time when the nations would be blessed and regathered. Look up on the screen at Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven. This is the Messianic Psalm. Remember, Jesus quotes from it while he's on the cross. The fruit of the Messiah's suffering is that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66. Here the prophet Isaiah records Yahweh's promise that the time is coming, and he would give a sign for that time. Isaiah 66, our reading from earlier. Isaiah 66, starting in verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. 
and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So that sign that he would give when all the nations would be invited into the glory that was temporarily reserved for Israel alone. Now those other nations are literally called brothers. And notice that part of this promise includes sending the faithful ones to go get the nations. God, whose promises never fail, says he will set his sign among his followers, and those followers will go to the far reaches of the earth to gather his, his believers. Back in Mark 16, even in a passage that he didn't write, Mark's question strikes again. Look, he has power over death. Look, the nations are being gathered. Who do you say he is? We see in the Great Commission, Jesus pointing to himself as that sign, saying, it's time to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And what is that gospel? It's the royal proclamation of a new king, a gracious new king that sets free the prisoners of all other kingdoms. Though you and I were part of a rebellious kingdom, he offers us forgiveness to join him in his work of bringing about a new creation where the new heaven, his dwelling, and the new earth, our dwelling, are in complete unity. Back in Mark 16, 16, we find a simple formulation of the two potential responses to Mark's telling of the gospel. Belief followed by baptism or unbelief. And Jesus is clear. There are two groups here. There's a good way to go, belief resulting in salvation. And there's a wrong way to go, unbelief resulting in condemnation. Jesus invites anyone and everyone to be gathered into the family of God. Belief in the resurrected Son of God changes everything. If you're here today and you want to know more about what it means to believe and be part of the kingdom that's being proclaimed here among us, find me or one of the other elders after the service. We'd love to talk with you about what this means. Or if you're listening to this and you find yourself in that situation and you want to know more, you can email us at elders at missionsalem.com. We'd love to have that same conversation with you and help you join a group of people proclaiming this kingdom. Now let's finish the passage by reading verses 17 through 20, back in Mark 16. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So here's the part of the passage where the needle scratches on the record in your mind. We find here words that have been mishandled and abused. Many Pentecostal churches see speaking in tongues as a sign of true belief, the absence of speaking in tongues as disbelief. Even more extreme are the churches in the American South that have taken up snake handling as part of their church services, a test of belief. And here we see Marcel handling a snake at the beginning of our service, a very timely uh, addition. So maybe you're asking, uh, didn't you tell us this is consistent with the rest of our Bibles? Uh, are we about to change some things in our liturgy? Well, my short answer is no, and my longer answer is no, we are not. The expectation that these, the expectation that these signs will be a sign of salvation is misguided and tragic. Casting out demons, 
speaking in new tongues, picking up serpents, and being unharmed by drinking poison are not normative behaviors in the church. That means they're not behaviors that are going to be consistent across all church history. Teaching them this way actually causes much harm both to people and to the witness of the kingdom we proclaim to the world. Instead, we have to keep verse 20 as our guiding light as we understand these signs. Notice what was confirmed by the accompanying signs. It's not salvation. It's not proof of belief or forgiveness. Go ahead and answer this out loud. What was confirmed by the signs? It's the message that was confirmed by the signs. But even before this moment, we've seen Jesus send missionaries and confirm the message by signs. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, two by two, all over Judea, proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of God. Then they come back. So look at Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They come back full of joy because the power of Jesus' name flowed through them. But Jesus gives them a sign, or gives them a warning. Don't rejoice in these signs. Rejoice in your eternal security. Rejoice in your Savior. Jesus gives the same warning in another way, Matthew 7. You can turn with me there, or you can write it down for a review later. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Here we see uh, the judgment scene. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In this scene of final judgment, prophecy, casting out demons, mighty works are worthless to the worker of lawlessness. But what is the characteristic of the one who will enter the kingdom? The one who does the will of the Father. Getting back to our passage in Mark, I don't want to sound unsympathetic to those who want confirmation of their salvation. The sincere believer asks themselves, how do I know my belief is sincere? But this passage does not answer that question. Instead, we draw from other passages that give us the signs of sincere belief, leading us to the kingdom of God, or signs of unbelief leading us to condemnation. We'll look at one. You can turn there with me or write it down, Galatians 5 verses 16 through 26. Here Paul invites us to read his words and look in the mirror and evaluate the signs of belief or unbelief in our life. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. How can I know my belief is sincere? You can look at the fruits of our lives. Do the, are they, do the fruits point as signs to belief or to unbelief? Now, as a fellow recipient of the grace of God, I have to sympathize with anyone who's feeling conviction as you read, read the list of the signs of unbelief. But if you feel conviction, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit at work in you, calling you to live in closer unity with him. So find someone here, someone from your discipleship group or, or an elder, and begin the process of confession and repentance. These are the things that keep us secure in Christ. Conviction is another sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And don't, don't hesitate to respond when you feel it. As you turn in your Bibles back to Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, you'll notice that the signs are still printed on your page despite all of my talking. So what do we do with them? Well, we see throughout the book of Acts that Jesus used these signs to confirm the message of the apostles. So this brings us to our fourth point, the signs of the apostles' authority. As the apostles obeyed the Great Commission, they were met with some resistance, some unbelief, you could say, which if we think back to their own unbelief, they had to understand at least a little bit. But they performed signs where Jesus confirmed the authority he had granted them. The first time we see this confirming sign is at Pentecost. The sign of speaking in tongues previously unknown to the apostles is on full display there. In Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In terms of healings, you can write these passages down. We see examples in Acts chapter 3, 1 through 7, chapter 8, 4 through 8, and chapter 9, verses 36 through 42. I'll turn to one, of, to one more, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. We see here explicitly that it is the apostles doing the signs. Many were saved, but it was the apostles' message that was confirmed by signs. Later, another one, another passage, Acts 19, it describes the signs God did by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs that touched his skin 
would bring healing to the sick and relief to those oppressed by evil spirits. So what is the point of all these signs? Remember back to Mark 16, 20. The point is to confirm the message. When the apostles went to first century synagogues and preached Jesus as Messiah, or they went into Gentile cities to spread the royal announcement of the risen king, God confirmed their message by signs. But other teachers, not believing in Jesus the Christ, resisted the teaching of the apostles. In one of his letters to the Corinthian church, Paul defends his authority in the church by pointing out, that the signs that it, by pointing out the signs that accompanied his teaching. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Here, Paul's responding to other so-called apostles who had come into the Corinthian church and were trying to undo the teaching he had given them. 2 Corinthians 2, 11 through 12, we're going to see some sarcasm in the Bible. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So, God confirmed the message through these signs. Other teachers who were dismissive of Paul and his teaching came into the Corinthian church and led them astray. But the signs were not a permanent presence in the apostles' life. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. So this ability to heal was not something that was ever present in Paul's life. Otherwise, he would not have left behind an ill friend. Instead, these signs were meant for a period of time to establish the church. Once the church was established, it established the teachings of Jesus, and it recognized the teaching of the apostles, and it assembled it into a collection of books and letters that we hold today. And now this becomes our authoritative guidance. And, when the, and the sign of the power of God today is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we fulfill the Great Commission and proclaim the gospel of our risen King, our message is confirmed by the way that we live. The way our relationships are no longer ruled by death, getting what I want at your cost, but instead are ruled by the same self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Getting back to Mark 16, we see in verse 19 the fulfillment of the often-mentioned ascension of the Son of Man to the place of authority. So we have our fifth and final point here, the ultimate sign of the authority of Jesus. Even though Mark didn't write this, I think it pays respect to Mark's gospel to include this here because it gives us one more chance to turn to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, the vision of Daniel of the Son of Man ascending to the right hand of the Almighty. The Ancient of Days. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." 
Here we have the ultimate sign of Jesus' authority, not just over death, but over all of the living. Did you tune your ears well? We see in verse 14 that he is served by all peoples, all nations, all languages. Here we have redemptive history complete. Jesus' ascension is not absence. It's his universal reign. And those who are part of his kingdom, those with believing loyalty, have no need for fear. This kingdom we proclaim and are part of is everlasting. It will never be destroyed. Our application questions for this week. Number one, am I giving the Bible authority in my life? God obviously went to great lengths to confirm the message of the apostles. That message is recorded here in our Bibles. And so I think we would do well to heed their teaching. Are there parts that we are tempted to cut out? Are there parts that we're uncomfortable with? We can trust the creator of the world with all of those questions and with all of that discomfort. Number two, what are the signs of belief and unbelief in my life? Here we use the Galatians 5 passage. Whether it's in your quiet time with someone who's close to you, your discipleship group, and evaluate what are the signs of belief and unbelief? Where can I add more signs of belief? And then third, whose gospel am I proclaiming to the whole creation? We will proclaim some gospel with our lives. Is it going to be a gospel of creating our own kingdom, of comfort or wealth? A kingdom focused on uh, our own sexuality without God's guidelines in place? Or is it the gospel of the resurrected king 